I had intended to stay in John, even through Mother's Day, but when I got back, I found that I just didn't have the clarity to put together a sermon in John for this week, so I backed up and decided that I would do something on Mother's Day. So turn with me to Titus chapter 2. I think I spoke from this passage about 10, 11, 12 years ago. And so any of you remember it from then, well, you just follow along and we'll be fine. I don't know about you, I have a problem remembering what happened yesterday, much less 10 years ago. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, speaking to Titus, the Apostle Paul, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Mother's Day is celebrated every second Sunday of May. But the real credit for the present celebration is given to a woman by the name of Anna Jarvis. Her mother, Anna Marie Jarvis, had tried for several years to get a Mother's Friendship Day organized to heal the scars of the Civil War. Mrs. Jarvis died in 1905. Her daughter decided to organize Mother's Day in the Methodist Church in her hometown of Grafton, West Virginia, on May the 10th of 1908, the anniversary of her mother's death. She sent a telegram to be read at the service, which defined the purpose of the day. It goes like this. To revive the dormant filial love and gratitude we owe to those who gave us birth to be a home tie for the absent, to obliterate family estrangement, to create a bond of brotherhood through the wearing of a floral badge, which she had sent 500 white carnations for that occasion, to make us better children by getting us closer to the hearts of our mothers, to brighten the lives of our mothers, to have them know we appreciate them, though we do not show it. As often as we should. I think if there's one thing that I regret in life is that I did not show enough appreciation to my mom. Who not only gave birth to me but raised me and suffered with me through my growing up years and even afterwards. Uh, You know... uh, I'm not a mother and never will be one, but I think I understand what mothers feel. Your children 
are never really totally grown up in your eyes. You recognize that they are, they're adults. But you still care about them as though they were your children, little children. Anna Jarvis campaigned for a Mother's Day observance. It was proclaimed by the governor of West Virginia in 1910. A year later, almost every governor followed suit in the country. And then President Woodrow Wilson declared the second Sunday of May to be a national Mother's Day. So this morning as we observe Mother's Day, we do so from a sense of, not so much from a sense of duty as citizens, but through a sense of admiration and honor and love for those who gave us birth. So today I want us to examine this portion of Scripture because it deals with mothers, uh, with women in the church, and it deals with mothers um, in chapter 2. The apostle gives instruction to the people who, whom young Titus was ministering to on the Isle of Crete. And he deals with the things that make for a healthy church. Things that will be a beacon of His grace and show the power of God to change lives. So he starts off with pastors who are to concentrate their attention on the spiritual depth of the church, that is, the spiritual growth of the church. And then we're to leave the wideness of that growth, the breadth of it, uh, that would be how many people the Lord sends into the church to the Lord. So depth indicates spiritual knowledge. Width or breadth would indicate spiritual activity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. That's the way we have to look at it. If we look at it any other way, then what we begin to do is we begin to be those who seek to draw people in by means that are unbiblical. We cannot and will not do that. He writes in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. All we have to do is sow. All we have to do is, is do what God said to do, and He does the rest. Paul writes in Colossians 2.19, that we hold fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments, and grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul focuses his attention on these groups of people within the church. And he does that, So that each group understands how it identifies with the other groups in the church. And they then in in turn become a unified body. He speaks of older men, older women, young married women, young men and slaves. Those are the groups. I think there's a couple of things we need to understand before we 
start uh, gleaning instruction given to the women of the church. First is the importance and responsibility laid on Titus and the other elders to teach good, clear, sound, biblical doctrine. You know, you hear a lot of you hear a lot of negativity about that word doctrine if you're listening to uh, TV preachers and radio. Some radio preachers, uh, some don't even like the word doctrine. It just simply means teaching, the teachings of Scripture. Paul tells Titus to teach solid Bible teaching. Why? Because there is a life to be lived, there are attitudes to be shown, there are duties to be performed that were to be complementary to the gospel of Christ. That's why we teach the way we do. How can someone glorify God and complement the gospel if they are not exposed to a steady diet of Bible teaching? They cannot. If you'll notice, he says in, in, uh, verse two, verse one, but as for you, teach. That word is translated in other translations, speak. Speak. Speak means normal conversation. It is a present tense which gives the sense that is a continual continuity and persistence and it is a command. There is no, there is no thinking, well, I don't think I'll teach. I don't think I'll teach today. It's a command to teach. To be doing this at a, on a regular basis. The word sound is where we get our English word hygiene. It means to be well, to be, to be of good, in good health, free from disease. So when it's used of believers, it refers to those whose opinions are free of any mixture of error and of those who abide in the grace of God and become strong in their faith. So how does that apply to us then? Christian people today are trying everything under the sun to increase their spiritual walk with the Lord. And the only thing that can really strengthen it is a steady diet of teaching, sound teaching, from the Word of God. It's the only thing that will do it. Now over the years, we've seen a steady stream of people in and out of this church. And by and large, for the most part, with the exception of a few um, upsets, it's been over the teaching of Scripture. And the, and the people that God has brought into this church over the years are primarily, those who, who have stayed, are primarily those who want to be taught from the Bible. And that's the main emphasis. So first is good, clear, sound Bible teaching. Second, the second thing to understand is that life 
and doctrine must harmonize. It's not enough just to be taught. A life has to be lived in accordance with what is taught. And so practically or practicality at the expense of sound teaching creates a superficial holiness. It's not a real holiness at all. And on the other hand, sound teaching at the expense of practicality makes people proud and self-centered and thinking more of themselves than they should. And so the fruit of right doctrine becomes right living. One is deficient without the other. So the elders at Crete were to teach and preach without deviation or capitulation or intimidation. They were to be aggressive in their sound teaching, coupled with their godly lifestyles. And around them in Crete were false teachers who were teaching unsound, deadly doctrines and mirroring uh, ungodly lifestyles. We see that today. It's very much like our own culture. There must be a steady diet of preaching, teaching and believing and obeying of divine truth in order to have good spiritual health. The simplest counsel that anyone can give when people have problems is to say, what does the Bible say? Go do that. But you have to know what it says and you have to know what it says in context. So if I were going to outline this chapter, it would be on the importance of sound teaching all of the, to all of the various groups and ages in the church. This morning, we concentrate on the women since it is Mother's Day. It has been said that a nation rises or falls on the standard of the morality of its women. Can you see the down the downturn, the trend downward over the last say 10 years in our nation? And can you can you equate that with the movements that have been bolstered by women. And where are the men? Where are the men that will stand up and say, this is not right? America is in deep trouble. Recent surveys... In a Marist poll of 2019, just two years ago, showed that a full 77% of Americans believe any woman should be able to have a legal abortion at any time, at will, and many of those were women. According to the George Barna Group, women are more likely to condone same-sex relations than are men. Those are just a a shave of the sampling of our society and the changes that have taken place in it. Unfortunately, many of the sentiments 
of the world have crept into the church. And now many, even even reformed pastors and elders, are embracing homosexuality, or not embracing it themselves, but condoning it in both men and women. And I read yesterday where the second largest Southern Baptist church in the country just ordained three women to their pastoral staff. The instructions Paul gives to Titus are to strengthen and grow a healthy church. They are straightforward and they are specific. They run contrary to human thinking and attitudes and culture. And many times they are unpopular and controversial. In many churches today, these are not, these things are not taught because they are considered to be either outdated or just too hard to hear. Too hard to hear. So let's start at verse 3 and see what he says to the older women of the church. A church with no older saints is a church that is deprived of the riches of years of experience of living life. And you young people and young families need to take note to the older, more experienced people in the church who have raised their families, who have grandchildren, and glean from their experience. It still still amazes me just how much young people think they know when they really know very little about life itself because they haven't gotten there yet. But they think they know everything, particularly in the teenage years. I better not get sidetracked here. (laughs) Like older men, mentioned in verse 2, the older women are to be given special respect and consideration because of their age and wisdom. Even if they have sinned, they are to be rebuked as one would rebuke their mother. I remember years ago, was an elderly couple uh, that were in the church, and they used to invite us over quite often. We would go to their house and have lunch, and we went. We went in the first time we went. We were just kind of shocked. Oh, they were really they were really nice people, but this lady of the couple uh, had a problem with talking too much about other people. So she would start talking about someone and 
and we would change the subject to something else. And then she'd start talking again about someone. We'd have to change the subject. This went on for a long time. Finally, she was confronted. We confronted her. We confronted her with respect, with dignity. We confronted her as we would confront our own mom. And she blew up and left the church, both of them. Paul writes to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and older women as mothers. First commandment with promise was, Honor your father and mother, and that your days may be long on the land that the Lord has given you. Under the old covenant, not to show respect was punishable by death. Exodus 21 verse 15. Paul indicates in 1 Timothy 5, That a widow of 60 years or older who met the qualifications of widowhood was to be supported financially by the church if she had such a need. That doesn't happen often these days. But if it did, that's the responsibility of the church. The older women served the church in many ways. They were looked to for advice on how to conduct home and children and raise children in a godly manner. They were they ministered to the needs uh, of each other and to the other women of the church. Paul did not instruct Titus to teach the younger women. He instructed the younger women to be taught by the older women. I find that significant. They provided hospitality to strangers who might come into the church or pass passed through the church. Because abortion was dangerous and expensive in that day, and there were abortions during in the first century, but they were expensive and dangerous, so they were, many times abortion was ba- abandoned. So if a... If a Boys then were raised, they were given, babies were given away, and boys were raised to be gladiators or slaves, and the girls were raised to become prostitutes at the temple. So the older women would find these babies on the steps of the temple and find homes for them to be raised, Christian homes for them to be raised in. Sadly, laws forbid such a thing in our time. And the, the adoption of children has become very difficult, long and tedious, arduous. It was Titus' job to teach the older women in such a way that was in accordance with sound doctrine. The elders' advised, advice had to match up with the teaching of Scripture. And it should always be that way. This is where the elders and the as counselors gets his good advice. He gets it from Scripture. Notice, if you will, the character qualities Paul lays out for Titus to teach these older women. Some are positive, and some are negative. Look, there's all you know. I've been accused at times of. Preaching negative things. 
Well, the Bible is full of negative things. If you're going to preach the Bible, you're going to have, you're going to run across some negative things. But there's some positive things too. So we take whatever comes. And so some of these are positive and some are negative. So the, so the first thing he says to the, to the older women is that they are to be reverent in behavior. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. We could say reverent in the way they live. The word reverent is a compound word, meaning holy or consecrated to a deity. And to stand out, to be conspicuous. So, in other words, her holy living, her holy behavior stands out. It's easily seen. It's displayed for everyone. It's to show holy devotion to the Lord in her life. The word generally refers to honoring God. But in the Greek society, this word was used which is only used once in the New Testament, it's used here, is characterized from the conduct of pagan priestesses who lived their lives in accordance with the deity that they believed and served. These priestesses were supposed to be the ones who were the closest to the gods, And so they conducted their lives in accordance with those gods. So these older women would have known exactly what Paul was saying when he said this to them. They would have known the the culture of the day and what took place. And now they are to do this. They are to treat their lives the same with regard to the living God as these others do to their false gods. In other words, he was saying that they should have hearts and lives that are completely holy and devoted to the true and living God. Their lives were to demonstrate their devotion. They were to conduct themselves as if they were God's servants serving in his temple. And indeed they were. All of you women who are serving the Lord, you're serving in God's temple, which is your body. This is not, this building is not the temple. You're the temple. An example of this kind of devotion can be found in Luke chapter 2 when Anna, who lived at the temple, came in and saw the, the child Jesus. She was 80, she'd been there 84 years and didn't depart out of the temple worshiping God. Her devotion was of such a character that she was given the privilege To be present when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple. Paul writes to Timothy about the women who are devoted to God and how they are to live. This is what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I desire that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with that which is proper among women who profess godliness. With good works, let the women learn quietly with all submissiveness. In other words, they lived and moved about in a spirit of holiness, 
focused upon godly things. Far too much emphasis is placed upon the external in our society. As it was in the early Roman society. Women, women would adorn their hair in huge hairdos with pearls and all kinds of jewelry. And, and they, they did it to try to outdo the next one. And, you know, I've, we grew up in the South. And when I, I can remember as a boy, every, every Sunday seemed like the women came more dressed up than they did the week before. And there's sort of a sense of falseness about it. What are they trying to prove? External appearance is not to be the main thing. Matthew Henry writes that elderly women are to keep, quote, a holy decency and decorum in clothing and gesture, in looks and speech, and in all their behavior. Women can be far nastier in this world than men. They can be. I don't know what it is about, about that that stands out, but it, it stands out more. You hear, you hear, you go out in the world, you hear men cursing and talking their talk. When you hear a woman saying those same things, it's just different. Those things ought not to be. The word behavior means demeanor, deportment, bearing, conduct. Probably better to say the word conduct because that's what it actually means. It speaks as much of attitude displayed as it does the actions that are performed. It deals with a state of mind. A woman who loves God is devoted to Him. She seeks to please Him. He sees Him as her Lord and she wants to obey what He says and do His will. Certainly that should be true of every believer. But these are specific words to older women who are qualified to train and to teach younger women because of their position in life and character as Christians. Number two, notice in verse three, they are to not, he says, and not slanderers, not slanderers. I think men are more inclined toward physical Actions where women are inclined to more verbal actions. Not that men are not capable of verbal abuse. They certainly are. But that tends to carry, have greater strengths in women than men. Proverbs 26, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. A whisperer. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Psst, 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 psst. 
when we were with Paul and Trish, we, we liked to play a game called Rook with them. You may be familiar. It's a card game. And so we're sitting at the table. And they start speaking in Indonesian to one another. And they say, hey, no, 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 that's not fair. We don't know what you're saying. The same thing is true when you when you see somebody. It's not always. You can't judge every whisper in every ear that way. But, mm, you know, be careful. Proverbs 26, verse 22, from another version. There is nothing so delicious as the taste of gossip. Proverbs 16, 28. A whisperer separates close friends. Another version. Gossip separates the best of friends. And it does. The Cretan women that Titus was trying to minister to had two common vices. Gossip and drunkenness. Paul instructs Titus to speak to both of those issues. They seem to go hand in hand. The word slanderer, now get this, comes from the Greek word diabolos, which is translated demon in Scripture, or devil. It means one who is prone to slander or slanderous or accusing falsely. A slanderer is a talebearer, a gossiper, a person who goes about talking about other people, stirring up mischief and disturbance, and turning other people's opinions to negativity about someone. Used 38 times in the New Testament, translated two times as false accuser, one slanderer, 35 times translated as devil or demon. So metaphorically, this applies uh, to a person who opposes the cause of God, may be said to be taking part with the devil or siding with the devil. When someone is slandering someone, that's what the devil does. He is a slanderer. So when you open your mouth to talk derogatorily about someone or demeaning in a demeaning manner or attacking someone's character or lying about someone or talking about something you don't know is the truth or whatever, you're simply doing the work of Satan. That's how long and short that is. Likewise, those who listen to such talk are just as bad. Jesus described Satan, the devil, as the slanderer or the accuser. In John 8, verse 44, he called him the father of lies and a liar. The scripture is full of commands of doing away with slander. Ephesians 4, 31, that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness 
Not busy at work, but busy bodies. You know what the antidote for, for gossip is? Work. Work. Something our generation, our newest generations, know little about. 1 Timothy 5.13, besides that, they learn to be idlers or going, uh, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busy bodies saying things they should not. You know, the apostle, he didn't mince any words. He just said it like it was and under the inspiration of God's Spirit. Other passages, James 1.26, uh, 1 Peter 2.1. All speak of this as well. I think you understand the danger and the gravity of such things. Number three, not given to much wine. Now in some manuscripts there's a connection here between slanderers and not given to much wine. And I think rightly so. What does alcohol generally do when you have too much of it? It loosens the tongue. And so now you're saying things that you wouldn't say ordinarily because there's something else taking control. The NIV reads, they are not to be slanderers addicted to much wine, which connects the two together. Let me give you several points as to why it is, this is important from a biblical point of view. I'm talking about drunkenness now. I'm not talking about a glass of wine with dinner. I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who who drink alcohol and end up drunk. They are not in control of themselves. Okay? Drunkenness is important because of the tremendous negative impact alcohol makes on our society as a whole. <coughs> Listen to these 1979 statistics. Now, this is a long time ago. Ten million alcoholics or drunkards in the USA. I guarantee you that number has doubled or tripled now. More than 30,000 in 1979 died from cirrhosis of the liver annually. 30,000 people. That's probably risen as well. Alcohol is indirectly involved in causing 50% of road accidents, 80% of deaths by fire, 22% of all home accidents, 65% of murders, 40% of assaults, 35% rapes, 30% of suicides. Number two, drunkenness is important because the Bible considers drunkenness to be an important topic. From the Old Testament alone, the word vineyard occurs 94 times. The word vine occurs 54 times. The word grape occurs 18 times. The word wine, speaking specifically of only one Hebrew word, the Hebrew word yayin, which means 
wine, fermented wine, occurs 141 times. I think uh, God wants us to know a little bit about this substance. There are almost 200 other words that relate to the vine and its products in Hebrew. Number three, drunkenness is important because drinking any intoxicant can lead to drunkenness. Drunkenness throughout the word of God in every mention is clearly condemned as sin. Now many of these older women on the Isle of Crete had turned to wine as a relief from the pains and frustrations of old age and its lonely consequences. Drunkenness among women was especially hated among the Roman society. Drunkenness in men was not looked at as much of anything, but drunkenness in women was hated. Now, we know he's talking about getting drunk here in Titus because he uses the words not given, verse 3. He says, nor slaves to much wine. That word slave, he's talking about drunkenness. He's talking about letting it control you. It is a perfect passive which speaks of the completeness of the action. So it means making a slave of something and reducing someone to bondage. The word has to do with a relationship to someone or something. It denotes one who uh, sustains a permanent servile relationship to another. So what he's saying is, is that the wine or the alcohol becomes the master. And this is what happens in those who become addicted to alcohol. It, it, It runs their lives. Or any other intoxicant for that matter. So he's saying that older women are not to be enslaved by or reduced to bondage by wine or alcohol or other means of intoxication. Why? Because it is sinful. That's one reason. But it leads to a loose tongue. Gossip and slander of others may be the outcome. We cannot willingly associate with sin because if we tolerate it, we will soon be practicing it. Number four, verse three, they are to be teachers of good things. Instead of succumbing to the enslavement of sinful vices, they were to live out a life that emulated the Lord Jesus Christ and become teachers of the things of God themselves. Now, the word Paul uses here in verse 3, this phrase, teachers of good things, is one single word in the Greek language. It is a compound word. The first part of the word means that which is beautiful or handsome or excellent, uh, precious, suitable, commendable. The second part means simply a teacher. So, when you put the two together, the older women are to be teachers of things that are beautiful and And wonderful and precious and choice 
and admirable. That's what they're to be teachers of. Things that are helpful, invigorating. Things that lead others to godly lifestyles. This is a teaching by example rather than by lecture. It all starts with the Word of God changing the mind and the attitudes of the individual towards sin and toward the, and toward the things of God. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. There's an unusual fruit that grows in West Africa. Its Latin name is Sinceptulum. I try to get this right. Sinceptulum dolphisicum. It's called the miracle fruit. It's actually a berry, or a little red berry. The berry itself has a mildly sweet taste, not extreme sweet. Mildly sweet taste. And when it's chewed, it stays in the palate. And the reason it's called the miracle fruit is because after it's chewed, everything else eaten tastes sweet and pleasant. Even things that are sour and bitter like lemons or persimmons are sweet to the taste. Even after several hours after eating this fruit, everything else becomes delightful and appetizing. This is how the older women are to be in the church. They're to be like this miracle fruit that their lives are pleasant. They're, they bring a sweetness to the, to the church and to the younger women and to the children. They are to teach the younger women in such a way as to live and practice godly things that become sweet even when they are bitter and hard in life. So, I challenge you, older women, to be a blessing to the younger women. Help them with the questions they have about child rearing because they don't know everything that you know. So teach them, help them, train them, mentor them, and leave the sweet taste of the goodness of God as an aftertaste in their life. And God will be pleased because you will be obeying His Word. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. I pray the day will be a blessing to you and that your family and your children will rally around you and And bless you on this day that is set aside as yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, Lord's Day. Thank you for the teaching from the Word. Thank you for the singing and the fellowship that we have with one another in Christ. Thank you that we 
live in a land and in a town specifically that uh, has not encroached upon us any kind of rule or regulation to hinder the worship that we have and desire to have as a church. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this day, bless the moms here, the grandmothers, and give them a special day with their families. And we just thank you for all of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. It is without end and every day is new with mercies. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.